welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series, which can be heard on VHHA.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get podcasts. We're a member of the Virginia Audio Collective and the Family Podcast Network, and we're on the radio each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, 107.7 FM, and 8.20 a.m. across Central Virginia, and Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on 93.9 FM in Richmond. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. Again, that is PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. And today we're excited to be joined by Dr. Ayla Stanford, a surgeon and leader on addressing health equity and disparity issues and advancing the reach of COVID-19 vaccination efforts into underserved communities and the presidentially appointed regional director for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Region 3, which includes Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and D.C. So with that, welcome to the program, Dr. Stanford. Thank you so much, Julian. Great to be here. Well, we appreciate you making some time for us in what I imagine is a very busy schedule. We are going to cover topical matters first, but fair warning, Dr. Stanford, I used to live in Philly, and I know you have some strong Philly connections and and are coming to us from Philly today, so please prepare yourself for some Philly-specific questions at the end of this conversation. Sounds good. Okay. Before that, though, let's talk about your role at HHS and how your professional experience coming into this position informs your approach. As we mentioned, your background as a physician is in pediatric and adult general surgery. You have also held roles in academic settings as former director of the Center for Minority Health and Health Disparities of the Temple University School of Medicine and in public health roles. So how does your professional experience shape your outlook and approach to your work as regional director and perhaps some of the priorities that you want to pursue? Great. Thank you for that question. So I have been a physician this month for 25 years, and I have had the privilege of operating on children primarily. But as you mentioned, I'm also board certified in adult general surgery. So what that allows me to know is the prenatal care for an unborn child through octogenarians and our 100 plus year olds. And I've operated on all. And that allows me to know about what impacts health outcomes for them, what goes into having a good post-operative course and or just preventative care so that hypertension is managed that doesn't get to a stroke and so that people are diagnosed early enough so prostate cancer can be curative as opposed to you losing your battle with cancer. And so the other part, not just my professional experience, but my lived experience uh, being a child born in an impoverished area of Philadelphia in North Philly and growing up in Germantown, being educated in the public school system. You know, I joke and say I was educated through Region 3 and that I went to Penn State undergrad med school and then University of Pittsburgh for general surgery, and then to Ohio for pediatric surgery. But I've traversed this state. I was even in Erie, Pennsylvania at Penn State in the beginning. And I feel as though I know the urban communities. I know the rural communities. I know the challenges and the triumphs. And so when I see the social determinants of health play out, and there's often a narrative about parents and or a patient not having a true stake in their own betterment and well-being, then the lens that I bring forth is one, being an advocate for health disparities and a leader for minority health and health disparities, but also being a child who grew up in a medical system where things weren't always what they seem. And so that is what I bring to this current role. Do you wish you could focus on practicing medicine without all the distractions? Covaris is here to help. 
As a leader in medical professional liability insurance with more than 45 years experience, Coveris provides insurance protection with data-driven predictive modeling to help you mitigate the risk of claims. By combining insurance protection with risk analytic services, you can reduce distractions and focus on improving clinical, operational, and financial outcomes. Coveris is reinventing what you should expect from your medical professional liability provider. Find out all Coveris can offer you at Coveris.com. That's C-O-V-E-R-Y-S.com. Insurance products issued by Medical Professional Mutual Insurance Company and its insurance subsidiaries, Boston, Massachusetts. You mentioned health equity, and we also alluded to just a moment ago your efforts around advancing the reach of COVID-19 testing and vaccination efforts into underserved communities. I gather a portion of this work, or significant portion of this work, was accomplished through the Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium, a group of about 200 healthcare professionals, which you helped establish to address elevated rates of COVID-19 mortality among African Americans, particularly in Philly and southeastern Pennsylvania. Part of that work, as I gather, was accomplished through a mobile COVID-19 testing and vaccination operation that was created in conjunction with this. So if you would, can you tell us about that effort and some of the successes of that campaign? Absolutely. So back in March and April of 2020, when everyone was sheltering in place, as I mentioned, I'm from Philadelphia, so folks were calling from my church, from my sorority, from the neighborhood, and saying that they had gone to hospitals to get tested, that they thought they had COVID, and they were turned away. And they were largely African-American, educated folks with health insurance. And I got on the phone and called ERs and said, this is Dr. Stanford. You just turned away, Mr. Johnson. And I think he has COVID. And immediately they said, Dr. Stanford, we'll get on it right away. And every person I did that for had COVID. And on the news, there was a different story. It was that because African-Americans have chronic health conditions and a large distrust of the healthcare system, that this was why they were impacted. And that's not what I was seeing in real time. What I was seeing is that it was access, access, access. And as a surgeon and now a private doctor running my own business, I could take my PPE, I could bring my testing kits and go to the zip codes that were most impacted and test. And not only did I test, it was barrier-free. If you were a child, you got a test. If you were a senior, you got a test. And I didn't charge anyone anything. And I paid for all of the tests until there was support available. And it's just an example sometimes of the narratives that people hold on to for so long. For example, that people don't trust the healthcare system when largely the healthcare system has been untrustworthy because of atrocities and experiences of the past that color the interactions people have with their healthcare providers. And so I was very intentional about calling the organization the Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium and my prior role because this was the community that was being most impacted. This is where we had to earn the trust of the people to decrease their morbidity and mortality, and it was ultimately successful. Some of the successes we had at last, the organization is still operational and functional, I, I might add, vaccinated over 55,000 people, predominantly people of color, tested over 25,000, uh, led a mission with FEMA to go into Philadelphia public schools and get the students vaccinated because the vaccination rates were so low. And in January 2022, there was a peak. And so we were able to combat that by getting those folks vaccinated and really explaining to the children who had, again, 
bad narratives of things they had heard online or through misinformation, we were able to just sit and listen and educate them. And that increased the vaccination rate among our youth substantially. So that is about it (laughs) in a a nutshell, briefly. Well, that's incredibly important work, and you are to be commended for doing it and taking on that challenge. From what I gather, the consortium has now opened a clinic, the Dr. Ayla Stanford Center for Health Equity, to provide primary care and behavioral health services to adults and children in North Philly, which, as you mentioned, for those who are unfamiliar, is one of the more economically challenged sections of the city. We know, and, and you mentioned this, social factors that impact health. We know that access to preventative care and efforts to get at those social factors are so important in community wellness and to strengthening public health. Here in the Commonwealth, we actually have an e-referral platform known as Unite Virginia that's been deployed to link healthcare providers with social service agencies to help connect patients, especially those in vulnerable populations, with support and safety net services beyond initial acute care. I sense that there are other systems like that which are being deployed or have been deployed elsewhere in the nation. I wonder, given your focus on addressing disparities, what your thoughts are about the value of leveraging those kinds of of platforms or or that kind of technology to better serve public health needs? Wow. I mean, it's integral. I mean, basically what you describe is incorporating the social determinants of health to have the best outcomes. And for those of our listeners, it's about your education. It's about proximity of getting expert care. It's about potentially any violence or unsafe conditions. It's about your nutrition and or the environment in which you live and how all these things impact your outcome. And so, you know, whenever I hear a physician say, well, the patient kept missing their appointment, they're non-compliant, it makes me shudder because really, why are they missing their appointment? Is it because your hours end at 4.30 and a parent doesn't get off work until 6 p.m., so it's difficult to make the appointment? Is it because they don't have transportation and maybe if they had a voucher to get to the appointment, they would make it? Is it because you don't have Saturday hours? And maybe if you had Saturday hours, parent would be able to bring their child. And so when you integrate systems that allow people to sign up for CMS, Medicaid, Medicare, and Marketplace, and that becomes part of it, when you have food banks that are associated with the care, then that allows a family to feed their family when they come in for a checkup. When you also have mental health and behavioral health services within your medical clinic, it takes some of the stigma away from mental and behavioral health because it's just part of your checkup. Even when you have pro bono legal services for someone who's trying to move up in the ladder and attain a better, well-paying job, and you have legal services in a healthcare setting potentially for a community, the difference it makes. And so what you describe in Virginia, certainly things that should be emulated across our nation. But when you want the best health outcomes, because everyone wants to be happy, they want to have joyful lives, they want to have longevity and not have differences in their life expectancy by 10 or 20 years based on their zip codes. When you incorporate all of these factors into the health care, that's what is considered equitable care. That's how you get to your best Well, I appreciate you sharing that perspective. You just mentioned mental health, and we are recording this in late May, though this episode will likely air in June. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and 
The data tells us that in the past two years during the pandemic, there has been a significant impact on mental health on the American public as a whole. Public opinion surveys from places like Gallup and Mental Health America, among others, have indicated that more Americans say that their mental health has been negatively impacted during this period. Here in Virginia, when we look at hospital-specific data, we see that even though service line utilization across multiple categories of inpatient care declined during the pandemic as people without COVID avoided getting medical care, including preventative care and necessary care. One of the few areas where you saw an increase in service line utilization was substance abuse and mental health related treatment services. And so when you look at those numbers and you hear about that, and obviously you have a focus on mental health, what is your outlook or perspective given the place that we are now where more people are saying they are struggling with mental health challenges. Obviously, you know, both the public and private sector has faced great strains. You know, workforce challenges are immense, especially here in Virginia, where last summer our state mental health system, some of the state psychiatric hospitals actually had to stop taking admissions because they didn't have the staff to accommodate them. Obviously, this is a a large issue and a large question, but I just want to hear some of your thoughts as you think through approaches to enhancing mental health care, which is something that we're going through in Virginia and I know is not just a Virginia issue, but it's a national issue. So fortunately, the Biden-Harris administration and Secretary Becerra have heard the people and they've been following this as well. And so there are, in terms of response and the National Suicide Hotline, which the 988 will be uh, rolled out soon, where there will be expanded resources available for folks to reach, certainly through SAMHSA, which is one of our operative uh, divisions that offers funding for mental health programs and recognizing that all of the care can't be in the ER, it can't be in the academic institutions, it can't be in the hospitals, but so much more of our care can be delivered in the community. And that's in smaller office settings. It's actually in the home. The home is one of the safest places and sometimes more welcoming for someone who needs mental health services. But then it gets to one of the points you mentioned, Julian, and that is the attrition in our healthcare personnel, which has been substantial over these two and a half going on three years just because the burnout, the actual healthcare providers themselves need some support and need reprieve. And so there's lots of funding, again, from uh, HRSA and from SAMHSA to bring forth initiatives for people to build some of the programs. But I think the part that's missing is the community-based approach, the -the in-the-home approach, and certainly some of these things being reimbursable and not private pay is how you get it out to everyone. There are recently services expanded for pregnant women, especially because we know with postpartum depression and also just the high maternal mortality rates in general, particularly in women of color, that that was needed. So there was extended funding put out to help pregnant women from the administration and postpartum women from the administration. And so another where support has been given from the federal government is the school-based programs for our youth and so that they can get some of the services they need when they go to school, right? And so I think the more things We can do in a home setting, in a school setting, even for some of our seniors in their assisted living is how we can do things more acutely because it takes time 
to generate more therapists and more social workers and more psychologists. Like that takes years and we need things now. So the points that I mentioned are how we combat it. And those are some of my ideas. Spot on about community-based services. It's something that we've been talking about for quite some time now, that obviously acute care settings are a place where many people can receive treatment, but that's not always the appropriate setting for all patients. And, you know, whether it's intensive outpatient Mm -hmm. or, as you said, you know, home-based options or partial hospitalization, programs that enhance community-based services so that we can get to people and get them the service and the care they need in a place that's convenient for them in their community really is, is important. So I appreciate you sharing those thoughts. I want to also talk about something that is occurring in June, that is Gun Violence Prevention Awareness Month. We are recording this uh, just days after a mass shooting uh, that claimed the lives of, of many children in Uvalde, Texas, just a week and a half after a mass shooting at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, at a church in California, and so many others. Here in Virginia, we have something called the Hospital-Based Violence Intervention Program. It is supported, in fact, with federal grant funding, and it operates in a number of hospitals here in Virginia to provide support services, post-acute care to patients, to help them restore their lives, not just through physical recovery, but also through transportation assistance or helping them apply for victim services, financial support, you know, or helping them with employment or a whole host of things that are post-care support services. And the program in the three years it's been in operation has had great success. There's been a re-injury rate of 1.4%, a dramatic reduction of what you typically see with victims of community violence. I want to hear your thoughts about programs like that and just generally some of the broader efforts about how healthcare, from your perspective, can be an engaged partner in trying to get at and address uh, community violence. Well, I mean, that's something that's near and dear to my heart as a surgeon, uh, particularly as a pediatric surgeon, because we are the trauma surgeons. When I was at Temple, no surprise to you being from Philadelphia, I took care of way too many children that had been victims of gun violence and more often than not were just hit by stray bullets in the wrong place at the wrong time. And to your point, when someone dies, obviously that's a loss for everyone. But when they don't die, that can also be a loss, right? Because you have to deal with the trauma of what happens and the potential post-traumatic stress from that and the fear going back to school, going back to the community, wondering if and when it will happen again, and then how that impacts the entire family. And so some of the things that have worked at Temple, of course, they have the cradle to grave, which was similar to maybe some of the things you're talking about, is exposing children to what that really looks like and not to say we don't need to engage young adults and even adults for that matter but how ways for conflict resolution so things don't become that type of a violent ending to a particular encounter but the other is in the schools again having the counselors sort of acutely deployed in a situation where there has been a shooting in a neighborhood and being available because most of the students, again, have been with those children the previous day. And then the next day, they're just not there. And so dealing with that and also the parents. And I think in terms of just the mass shooting, I mean, my goodness, that's a multidisciplinary approach on so many levels. 
And I hear people talk about it's a mental health issue, but sometimes it's not a mental health issue. Sometimes it's just pure hate. Sometimes it's just pure racism. And sometimes it's guns that are in hands of people that should not have them. And so this is not something I have one solution to fix it. I think the multidisciplinary approach, because maybe what's needed for our youth is different than what's needed for these mass shootings. But it's something that we all as Americans have to decide. It's not just their problem or it's not just their problem or that's not something that would ever come to my community, but to realize it's impacting all of us, regardless of socioeconomic status and color and neighborhood and community, and that we all need to be advocates and do our part in this process for things to get better faster before we continue to lose more lives. Well, as you say, we we all share this place, this planet, and we all have a stake in it. So I appreciate your perspective and thoughts there. I do want to hit one more topic with you. And again, it is about a difficult subject, but it is about human trafficking. And I know this is work that HHS is involved in because VHHA has been a participant in this work in, in the regional collaborative, the interdisciplinary collaborative combating human trafficking. And quick shout out to our friend Trish Danner, who also works at HHS for helping to steer this important work. This is something that here in Virginia has been a focus through lawmaking, through community-based services to help survivors of human trafficking. We have a new human trafficking liaison both in the state, it's a state-level position. We also have in the Attorney General's office an anti-human trafficking director. Tell me just a little bit about, and I mentioned, you know, VHHA and other partners in multiple states are working with the Regional Interdisciplinary Collaborative, which again, HHS has taken a leadership role on. Tell me about what you see as HHS's role in addressing this really horrible criminal enterprise that exploits people both for labor and, you know, even more sickeningly also for sexual reasons. So what are your thoughts about the work that HHS has done so far and what do you see going forward in that regard? So first, thank you for giving a shout out to Trish Danner. She is certainly a star and a leader in that role here for us in Region 3. So our job largely for all of the regions, but especially here in Region 3, is recognizing where the trends are, where that trafficking is happening the most. What are the ways in which this is happening largely with young women and then supporting that state, that jurisdiction? And that's everything from resources for a safe place for, and I'm saying children, but for people to come in when this happens. Where can they go? Where are the shelters? Where can they find a refuge? And then following that up with support once they are identified. And then if there is an identifiable person who has brought forth this, is giving that information to the authorities. And just something not as simple but really important is different signs, educating the public that if you see a young woman, and it could be a young man, but if you see a young person with a particular symbol, which I can't, a hand sign that I can't show you on the radio, that that may mean that they need help. And not that you should engage that person, but maybe copying a license number down, seeing a description, and then getting that to the authorities. And I think also with the education Again, as Americans, as we educate people, is for people to have some empathy and maybe see that young person as a family member. Again, not a, this is a their problem. 
not an hour problem and recognize if it were your family member, would you want them to experience this? And I think when you humanize it and see that this is wrong and this is an atrocity that shouldn't happen to any living, breathing person, then you engage more of the community and the public and they become part of the solution for ending the human trafficking. So first it's recognizing, then educating the community to identify for us, if we see perpetrators, making sure people know how to get that to the proper authorities, if not directly from us, and then humanizing and continuing the support in this area. Well, as you said, if you see something, say something also as a resource. And we have shared this with Trish at HHS. VHHA worked with a team of forensic nurse examiners and sexual assault nurse examiners at hospitals around Virginia to develop a human trafficking resource manual. Anyone that's interested in learning more about this subject, certainly encouraged to find that on our website. Just Google VHHA and human trafficking manual and you'll find it there. And that has a wealth of resources about the laws in Virginia, some of the statistics about trafficking, as well as some of those telltale signs to recognize as someone who might be in an exploitation situation. So appreciate you sharing your thoughts there. We're going to come near the close now of this episode. I did say that we were going to ask you a few Philly-related questions, Dr. Stanford. I do have to <laughs> initially ask a question, which will set up this question, which is, um, are you a meat eater? <laughs> a meat eater? Yes. Do you, do you yes. eat meat? Yes. I am not a vegetarian. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. the obvious and obligatory question is, Uh, And you said that you lived in Germantown, so I I suspect I might know your answer, but what is the best cheesesteak place in the city? For me, D'Alessandro's all day. Okay. It is one of the... That's not what you expected me to say. No, no, no. Well, I mean, Germantown, I mean, I immediately think of Max's. And I think D'Alessandro's is, to me, there are three places (laughs) that are worthy of taking on that grease and caloric intake. Steve's Prince of Steaks. Max's and Delisandro's. Those are the three. And I, I always advise people, you know, yeah. you know, no disrespect to anyone else, but there are some places in South Philly that are the commonly known places. And I tell people those are tourist traps. If you want a real cheesesteak, it's Steve's, yeah. it's Delisandro's, or it's right. Max's, which is in Germantown. So Right. And back in the day, we used to go to Explorer's Den. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm familiar. Way, I'm familiar. <laughs> okay. Well, I did want to get the, that one Philly plug in. And then before we let you go, I have two more questions for you. And this is a tradition uh, on the podcast. We ask our guests two sort of fun, quirky, personal questions to give our listeners a bit of a sense of who these folks are beyond the work they do. To keep things interesting, we've developed a list of 10 mystery questions. And so you get the choice. If you give us two numbers between one and 10, I will ask you the corresponding questions from that list. How about three and eight? Okay, three. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received and why does it stick with you? That hard work will solve 90% of your problems. The other 10%, you just have to let go. It sticks with me because we live in a world where people have subjective opinions about you, things about you that you can't change. It's the way you were born. It's where you were born, and you can't. But I've found that how you dispel a subjective narrative is with objective data, and that is 90% hard work will solve the majority of your problems. The other 10%, you just have to let go. Absolutely. That sounds like an aphorism that Philly's own Ben Franklin might utter, and and hard work does (laughs) does often cure all. A little bit of elbow grease. And then you also chose number eight. Tell me one memory from your life that whenever you think of it, it makes you smile. I'd probably say two things. One or uh, it's almost three things. So the birth of 
all my children. <laughs> so I would say that makes me smile. And the other is when I graduated from medical school because there were so many people there who I love who are no longer with me. My great grandma, my grandma, some godparents. And this month, actually, is 25 years ago that I graduated from medical school. So it's been kind of nostalgic for me. And just looking back at the pictures from that day and how I was able to share that with my family. And it was because of them that I was able to become a doctor. They supported me in every possible way, in every way that they could. And so that always makes me smile that day. Well, as they say, it takes a village. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Congratulations on your anniversary. And that is going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so that you know when new episodes are available. And we want to once again thank our guest, Dr. Ayla Stanford, who is the Region 3 Director for HHS, for joining us today. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I'll look you up when I'm in Virginia. Sounds good. 